everyone to the next edition of the Great European Talks. It's been a while, but we're back. We're all stuck at home with the coronavirus epidemic. So what better way than to produce another episode of our talks and introduce some of the new topics in current affairs that are happening from around the world. So last time we had a look at Eurasian affairs and this time we're moving on to North Atlantic and Western European affairs. There's a lot happening outside of COVID-19. Um, as well as a couple issues that we find recurring in these countries. And so we're going to introduce some of these, debate them a little bit, look at how they interact with wider affairs, and then go from there. So, joining me today, we have Abhavardhan, our Eurasian editor. Say hello, Abhavardhan. Hello to all. So this is Abhavardhan, I'm the Eurasian editor for the Institute, and I'm delighted to have it. Yeah. Great. And we also have with us Jonas. You want to say hello? Yes, hello all. Uh, I'm Jonas. Uh, I've recently joined the Institute as a writer and will be looking mainly to do articles around European and North Atlantic affairs. And lastly, we have Peter. Yes, hello everyone. Very happy to be here. I'm also a new writer here at the Institute. I'm very interested in European affairs, North Atlantic, as well as Eastern European. So happy to be here. So we're going to look through some of the topics here and each of us has brought our own topic that we're going to debate and discuss and go in a little bit further. So first in this, we have Jonas, who I believe is going to talk a little bit about the new British Chancellor, uh, Rishi Sunak. Jonas, take it away. Brilliant. Well, um, Rishi Sunak, uh, a 39 year old uh, BAME Chancellor, uh, following actually his predecessor, who was the first Asian Chancellor of the Exchequer has taken over to the fold. Now, before I get into it, it's worth sort of noting the prologue. Why did this happen? Why did this occur? Well, it, what we saw with Sajid Javid was very much a willing, well, an unwillingness to surrender his staffers and his advisors to a uh, ad, to the administration's will to create a joint economics unit under Boris Johnson, which would pair uh, these staffers together with number 10 and number 11. So have we sort of seen a conflict like this in, in modern times in Britain? Well, of course, we had Blair versus Brown in many discussions between the, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Exchequer and, of course, the Prime Minister. And that is really the, the tension we have to go back to. I will talk also about uh, Rishi Sunak and his his difficult sort of nature in, in which he sort of be, sort of was thrown into the fold, um, especially now with COVID nineteen, a task which uh, a Chancellor of the Exchequer hasn't really faced on, since I would say the financial crash of two thousand and eight. But is it different? What is different about his um, time now as the new Chancellor of the Exchequer? He's already, of course, promised in his March budget £30 billion package uh, for the, the party of public services, the governing party, of course, the Conservatives, to ditch the Conservative economic or orthodoxy and to increase the state size to levels which we haven't seen on since the Blair days. And uh, it, the situation, of course, is... is um, a very interesting one concerning what has ha unfolded now uh, with COVID. 
And I can see why he matches the portfolio of a Chancellor of the Exchequer. Namely, in 2016, he wrote an interesting article on the free ports opportunity, which argued for uh, a economic area which was completely free of, 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 of customs territory uh, and, and to create these sort of free trade zones um, across the nation, especially with emphasis in the north, as he is, of course, also a Yorkshire MP. What is different about this chancellor, though? What has changed? I would say what has fundamentally changed is this submissive and subservient nature, in a sense that this has come about with Boris Johnson's um, with, with his with his joint declaration with this sort of joint economics unit to be paired together with uh, number ten and number eleven, rather you know we as we have seen in the past with Sajid Javid and George Osborne, uh, well maybe less with George Osborne, but these figures tend to be rivals as well of leadership and tend to be senior uh, MPs uh, as Chancellor of the Exchequer's in number eleven, but this is definitely where it differs. Uh, the deontology, I believe, the very nature of the Chancellor of the Exchequer has changed. And it seems like it's now a, a less senior figure has joined the fold. Do you think that he really shares the beliefs that Boris Johnson has and the values that he's trying to put into sort of the new conservative way? I, I definitely think so. Uh, as, it was especially obvious in his 2016 uh, Freeport article uh, he argues that we need to sort of follow um, very much the U.S. foreign trade zone program and create these free ports uh, within within Britain. Only currently there is the Isle of Man, which is sort of anywhere close to a free port in which uh, there are no customs and 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 sort of customs can uh, trade can be. Uh, can 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 come in and can come can can come out and so forth without without these sort of um, customs coming in. So I, I fully believe he shares the vision uh, of Boris Johnson, I, but I believe he will be very much a, a, a subservient and a su submissive uh, chance of the Exchequer to Johnson's uh, demand. Mm, yeah, especially now that he has more of a grip on the office and portfolio of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So would, do you think this is going to have a big impact on, for example, the current Brexit negotiations? Now we've got a Chancellor who's kind of very subservient to the freewheeling Johnson spirit. I definitely I definitely think so. Uh, of course, it's all a bit up in tatters for the moment, what is happening regarding the uh, negotiations. Recently, of course, Johnson has confirmed it would go ahead and he has promised once again that uh, if there is no deal by the summer that they, they, he would go out without a deal. But as we have found out over the last week, even Michel Barnier for the, for the moment has been tested positive with uh, COVID-19. And so it doesn't seem realistic to negotiate anything in the foreseeable future in the sense of a month or two. Um, when it comes to Sunak, he, he, he's a very young, if I may say, a young MP. He came in the fold in... 2015, uh, and worked his way up uh, in in the uh, as as a junior minister inside the the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and I think Boris took note of this Freeport idea, especially when Boris Johnson for a long while was 
looking into having similar economic models uh, and regulations as Singapore. The Singapore on the Thames idea. Exactly, exactly. I think Sunak suits the bill quite well. And I think Johnson Johnson has, has his man now. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we will see how things develop. But of course, Sunak is now dealing with, I think, one of the greatest tasks the Chancellor of the Exchequer has faced in the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, we, this is, this is similar to a financial crash in the sense of the act, the, the role which the state has to, of course, perform now in uh, filling, of course, many employed people's wages, uh, which, which it will be, uh, as, as was yesterday announced on the 20th of March. The 80, uh, around 80% of people's wages would be uh, replaced. Although there have been outcries um, to extend this on the self-employed as they have only been guaranteed around a figure of £380 a month. Wow, so, yeah, not a lot. Exactly. We will see what happens uh, in regards with that. But definitely Sunak has a, has a very hard job with, well, experience in the office uh, of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, but not actually as the Chancellor, as as the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So we will see how things develop in the UK regarding this situation. Okay, fantastic. Um, Abhavadan, Peter, anything you want to add? Uh, sure. Um, if we see Sunak's background, and you know, uh, much of the things already are there on plate, so that is appreciative. But I have also seen that just before the COVID-19 thing happened in the world, so brazen that we are just focusing on that issue instead of other issues, uh, a very interesting development happened that uh, Boris Johnson recently appointed, uh, I should say, an NRI, a non-resident Indian. Uh, I just don't remember his name. Uh, He was just being appointed as the business minister, if I'm correct. And... This is a similar trend which he's following in some cases. Like, okay, he appointed Preeti Patel as the Home Secretary and then he had Rishi and then he had this person as well. Alok, if I'm correct, and he's the business minister and he will be the head of COP20, if I'm correct. A business summit which is organized by Britain. He's going to be heading up that as well. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like the COVID-19 scare is another thing, but still COP20 will happen maybe in three to four months or five months as things are. But okay, that's a good thing. It also uh, shows one thing that maybe, this is my speculation, it could be wrong, it could be correct, that uh, Britain, as had before the Brexit thing happening, said that it would like to encourage more relationship with India, Singapore, um, other countries like the United States. So maybe, maybe there's a case that, you know, appointment of these people and also a strategy that Boris Johnson may have could actually lead to a more Indo-British relationship, which itself is inevitably to be, you know, discerned by the Indian Minister of External Affairs, yeah. Shankar. And I'm pretty sure that Modi's government is very agile in this when it comes to deals. Mm-hmm. So that would be interesting to see. That's much I would like to add. And let's see how things Thank go. You. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. It feels like almost he's trying to gain legitimacy with these countries whilst having, you know, these new BAME um people i think it kind of cheapens their own experience though they are obviously capable people on their own it's not like he's just making them figureheads for for the sake of it um but yeah no thank you for that i think we'll move on now to um 
Peter's topic, and you were going to look a bit more at COVID-19 and about the Canadian response, which not many people have heard of. It's obviously Canada, a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial country, proud of its open borders. Uh, how is it responding to the crisis right now? Um, and, you know, does it say anything about how other closely connected countries across Greater Europe can act too? Take it away, Peter. Yes, hello. So, like you said, I will be tackling the Canadian government's response to the coronavirus outbreak. And as you said in the preamble, that Canada is in fact very proud of its open borders, especially with the United States. However, I don't know if the rest of you saw, but just this week, it was announced by Prime Minister Trudeau and President Trump that there has been a mutual agreement between the two countries to close the border to casual travelers and non-essential travel. They assured the Canadian economy will not be affected because it uh, will not affect trade and the free movement of goods. However, this also takes into account the millions of people living within Canada who are affected every day by American travelers into the country. So me specifically, coming from Niagara Falls, a tourist city, there are at least 40,000 people who rely on their livelihoods purely from tourism. So it's really very interesting to see how this recent development plays out in the Canadian economy. Now, furthermore, I would also like to uh, mention that the Canadian response to coronavirus is also preamble by the fact that Canada had another outbreak of monumental proportions in 2003 with the SARS uh, epidemic. Canada was the country outside of Asia that was hit the worst, and it had the highest fatality rates outside of Asia, 17%. The, the Canadian government suffered heavily in the polls the following years, and there was much criticism because the, there was little to no communication between the provincial governments, there was no public health agency, and at the time, in fact, Canada did not even have an epidemic plan. Wow. Do you think they've um, actually learned from the mistakes of SARS? Yes, I would say they have learned from the mistakes from SARS because the first thing that they did was they spent 17 years creating a, a pandemic plan, they call it in Canada. Mm -hmm. And this includes hospital beds being made available purely for pandemics. And as well, we can see how quickly the government of Canada has um acted on this virus so within days of the virus spreading to canada we now have over 1000 cases justin trudeau has started to make daily addresses to the canadian government to the canadian people mm -hmm. similar well, to boris johnson's um reports as well yes exactly it's, it's much in the same vein where mm. he stands on a podium gives the daily <laughs> updates and then he takes questions from the press and it's also important to note that Canada has announced sweeping economic reforms and economic packages to citizens. So this includes a 50, uh, $82 billion in an emergency economic response package. Mm -hmm. That is approximately 53 billion euros. Wow. So this, include, this includes a 15-week emergency care benefit to self-employed and part-time workers who do not qualify for paid sick leave. This includes an interest-free reprieve period for student loans, as well, a one-time tax rebate of up to $400 for every single individual in Canada. Wow. And that goes up to $650 for people with children. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's quite a lot, even for Canada, who are known for being quite uh, socially it's, redistributive. 
it amounts to 3% of our GDP. Wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he's also committed um, $300 million to indigenous communities who are who have the potential to be the most affected by this virus due to the already squalor conditions that many of them live in. Little to no health care, no communication to the outside world. Um, some of these places don't even have clean drinking water. So the $300 million that the government has announced for the Indigenous communities will go a very long way to helping them. As well, I would also like to talk about some bad parts mm -hmm. about the Canadian response. Yeah, go ahead. Specifically, specifically, that we can really see the rise of regionalism once again in the country. So Quebec has most certainly taken the lead on the fight against COVID-19. In fact, all the way back on March 12th, they were the first province in Ontario to declare a state of emergency. The Premier made an address to the citizens of Quebec, urging them to stay inside, specifically senior citizens. As well, he banned all public gatherings of more than 250 people, and he closed gyms, bars, theatres, and any public spaces. And this is in stark contrast to the Premier of Ontario, who in fact on the very same day that the at the, pre, the Quebec Premier announced a state of emergency, told families to go on vacation and to enjoy their spring break. Oh my, <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of the, the worst thing to hear in this scenario, isn't it? De definitely. He has of course since changed the tone and the province of Ontario has since made a state of emergency plan. Mm -hmm. As well, I would like to comment on the recent development that the Canadian government announced that irregular migrants coming from the United States, so these are people that the Canadian government says have crossed into Canadian territory, not on a regular border crossing. So the, the Canadian government has announced that these people will now be sent back to the United States, which opens up a whole litany of legal questions and moral questions, because previously the arrangement was that these people came into Canada and despite the safe third country agreement with the United States, there was a unwritten agreement that Canada would at least hear their asylum applications, which mm -hmm. with over 50% of them being approved. Mm -hmm. However, no questions asked now, they get sent back immediately to the United States. Wow. That's... And we, the Canadian government has not received any assurances from the American border officials that they will not be detained in the U.S., as well, Canadian officials cannot guarantee the safety of these people once they arrive back in the United States. So there's even NGOs from around the world speaking out against this, with, the, with Amnesty International referring to it as an unexpected and shocking reversal that goes against international obligations to refugees from around the world. Okay. However, Justin Trudeau continually goes into public and ensures Canadians that extraordinary times require extraordinary measures. So it will be very interesting to see as the coronavirus uh, situation develops what Canada will do and also what other countries around the world will do. Mm -hmm. Do you think any countries are kind of picking up from this? So obviously Canada's led the way in being rather, I would say, uh, aggressive to other authoritarian countries who maybe are taking harsher risks like Saudi Arabia and China. Um, do you think other countries will see Canada and think, oh, well, they're, they're doing this, why don't we go that hard as well? I think other countries will see Canada's response economically 
as an example for their own. The because there are a lot of Canadians who every day are at this point still forced to go to work despite the threat of coronavirus. So this economic package will allow them to call in sick. It will allow them to not have to rely on these low-income jobs. Most of the time, these people are low-income earners. Mm-hmm. That they risk their health and safety going into work, dealing with the public, dealing with their co-workers. So if other countries can follow this lead and allow these most vulnerable people to not have to go into work, then it really can lead the way in stopping this coronavirus outbreak. Okay, very interesting. Um, Jonas, so I've Do you wanna add anything? Yeah. Oh, hello. Sorry. Oh, no worries, no worries. How do you think the Canadian model, especially economically, kind of matches up with the UK's current response? Well, the problem is the UK is still, I would argue, in a transition period. So whilst schools have shut now and public places have also been told to shut down, so this is restaurants, pubs, clubs, uh, cinemas and theatres and so forth, what we have seen is, is a mixed response and not quite a united response, especially where it matters. Half of the cases, half of the deaths for the moment are all originated from London. And whilst the mayor of London has been reducing services, there has still been a there has still been commuters commuting to work on a daily basis. And so it's it it actually created the very opposite of a constructive plan to to battle uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, by reducing the services and by still having the workers um, taking the tube and so forth uh, to work, it actually created more jam-packed tubes, especially around Central Line and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the UK is finally catching up to what I would call the European norm now in its response. If we look at um, Macron and what he has uh, promised in the sense of... uh, a war sort of on coronavirus. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. guaranteeing uh, wages as well as rent suspensions, uh, as well as social payments and so forth. But I think what we might see in the coming weeks is uh, more required from the government uh, in the sense of guaranteeing uh, renters. They've already guaranteed in the UK landlords' um, wages, especially if you're a, if you're if your your sole income as a landlord is from rents. Uh, those landlords have already been guaranteed uh, to have to have some form of compensation for their potential losses. So uh, it's not to the same extreme in Canada. But but the question I I ask myself is, does the UK government feel like they probably felt for a long while we have to uh, remain open, we have we have to go on with business as usual? Because of course this uncertain transition period. Uh, is a is a is a is a very awkward place in British economic history to be in. Yeah, uh, definitely. And to, yeah, to, yeah. to go to go forth from this into the abyss of no more EU and rather a, a free independent trade policy with whichever country uh, or organization uh, under the w, uh, under the World Trade uh, Organization's uh, ruling standards is going to be problematic for the UK. And as we have seen uh, in the UK's markets, the pound has now dropped to a 30-year low, as well as um, sort of on the market average of around 3 to 4% um, over a few weeks we have seen uh, in, in a drop. 
I can only see this um, stagnating further. And But what we will see, I think, is as Boris Johnson has been doing on a daily basis, we will see an escalation, I think, especially around London. And the, the government have been looking into this, apparently, to to really enforce uh, a quarantine in the metropolitan areas more than in more rural areas. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess, yeah, following from that, Peter, uh, have you found there's been uh, a rallying in the Canadian economy or stock market? Like, have the drastic measures actually been bolstered by the the economy sort of agreeing with it? Or have you found a similar slide kind of like the UK right now? Well, the problem is at the same time as this coronavirus, we also had the price of oil going down. Ah, yes. And many, mm. many people have likened the Canadian dollar to petrodollar. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the, the oil price is going down does not help the situation at all in Canada. So we have Alberta, which is almost entirely dependent on oil. Their economy is slipping. The, therefore, the Canadian dollar is slipping. It's trading at about 65 cents, the US dollar right now. Oh. which is the lowest it's been in many, many years. Okay. So I think what this economic package does, I don't know how it will do in stabilizing the economy, but I think it helps the average Canadian to have a peace of mind that the sky is not falling, the world is not going to end. I, I, I liken it to what Jonas said about how, since the UK is in somewhat of a transition period right now, the government wants to create some kind of stability. They want to show that maybe they're a bit in control. It's the same in Canada. So I don't know if I can emphasize how much of a crucial um, cultural thing it is to close the border with the United States. When's the last time that happened, do you know? It has never happened since Canada has been a country. Really? Not even during, like, 2001 or any of the... Nothing, no, never. To have... To have a uh, complete shutdown of the border to non-essential travel is unprecedented. That's incredible, so, actually, yeah. So for the average Canadian to hear this, it really feels like the world is ending because the border being open is just a constant for so many people. 90% of the population lives on the U.S. border and mm. travels to from the United States on a daily basis. So I think this this economic package, the Prime Minister going out every day and giving reassurances and applauding our healthcare providers, applauding the nurses, the doctors, the people who are on the front lines, it really boosts up the morale of the country. And I think we've already started to see this in Canada as well as in other European countries. When you see um, um, people on their balconies applauding the healthcare workers, you're seeing people coming up with creative ways to stay busy during the quarantine. These are the kind of things that society needs at this time. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's been a very interesting look, and I think um, Canada's a, a country that people kind of underestimate how important their leading role in a lot of these situations is. Um, so thank you, Peter. Um, and next, we would to Abhav Vardhan. Uh, if you want to introduce your topic a little bit, and uh, yeah, tell us what it's about. Sure. So I've been seeing a few articles which are on the global uh, global health and global, I should say, prediction system, which has been that uh, on HuffPost, on the New York Times, and maybe some other pages, that certain commentators or some certain academics have argued that 
in this wake of the situation, we are all socialists. And that is something which is very interesting to observe. Now, when we say that the current order is responsible and the Western countries, preferably in North America and Western Europe, have a big role here. Uh, what I've found is in general that they will have to see how these opportunities and these adversities will go. Why? Is because if we compare a little how the responses have been. So, uh, recently, I think uh, the representative of Wuhan province in China gave a video in CCTN, which is, I think, China's uh, maybe state-run or private, I don't know, state-run uh, media channel, in which he gave a kind of a video. And we, he was saying that uh, lockdown is something which is a reality and we have to face it. It may be an issue of liberty and rights. And most of the time, we often talk about, whenever we talk about global systems, whether of healthcare, whether of climate change, whether of immigration, whether of anything, we always talk about a two-sided balance. But maybe it's just not the jurisdiction of balance, but it's also beyond the question of uh, how the existential systems could be. Like, thing like COVID-19 or thing like anything which is being affected. Like, before this event, the Med this health event, we had the execution order by Donald Trump to kill Qasem Soleimani. Then we had Brexit, where we had seen the economic rates being affected. We had also certain situations in India where various protests have been happening and the European Parliament was also reacting and the world was reacting. So there was a kind of chaotic stuff which was already happening. Let's focus on that uh, op-ed which I had, which was particularly on understanding how healthcare works. So I'll be brief here. So... This HuffPost article, which was on socialism and healthcare things, this is something which might be integral and it would be in, in, uh, understandable to see how the US reacts. Because we also know that while the US has its own formality, uh, deformalities and commonalities due to the current presidency and the way they have been reacting, that could be a partially conservative approach, which has seen, which has kind of become, you know, a very reckless imagery. It would change. But the centrality of the issue is that when these regions, like for, in particular the response of countries like the UK and Canada are still okay to an extent, I would argue to, the, to a limitation that uh, the US's response, you know, kind in that sense of being primary or being a leader of the world would be integral. And I think much would be important to discuss when we'll go deeper into it. But yes, I'm open to questions. So yeah, I just cut it short. Okay. okay. Um, anything you guys want to add or should we move on to the next uh, topic? I would just like to ask a quick question. Um, you said something very interesting there and you said that during a crisis, we are all socialists. This was a, an opinion you saw in an op-ed. I'm just putting it out there that to what extent do we think that this crisis will change how people look at the world or do you think that when the crisis ends this kind of phase of socialism or government spending and these economic packages will also end i think it may be a different case but if we see the trends we have populists whether of any genres left center or right all over the world right we have populists in you know european countries and more also among those who are the P5 members, which means that also the G7 members, among those G7 members, we have a lot of populists. And most of the populists who have reacted to this crisis, even Matteo Salvini, who is not currently, you know, in power, 
has been reacting very differently in a conservative and stupid manner. I'm so sorry to use this word, but uh, what I meant to say was that if we see the basic trends, then there are two approaches. So the populists react in a way which is very conservative. Okay, they are helping and they are working out. But in future, after this, whether it would go to a socialism basis or not is something which would be difficult. I think it's more about the fact that a kind of government accountability would be there because that's something which is uh, anti-globalization. There has been a very interesting article on, uh, on the foreign affairs where, where, uh, and the question was whether uh, coronavirus would end globalization. So the thing is that when national governments have their measures to do, like in the EU also it is happening, while the European Commission has also fizzled out, while its member states have certain discontent and all of that, while things are, I think mostly the populace will react in a different and wild manner and that would only depend on how they influence the people and how their patterns of influence are mitigated. Because still it's not happening and if it would not, it would, I think, fall into the, you know, people would fall into the trap of the far right or those who are anti-immigration or anti-globalization. But for those who are quite centrist or balancing, I think still they would have a choice. But I think still mitigation would be easier for them. But for the right populist, I don't find so. That would be my point. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think we're running out of time, so move to the next one. So my topic uh, today was about the um, NATO Secretary General's new report. So on the 21st, uh, sorry, on the 19th of March, uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, um, released the 2019 report um, on the actions over the past year. Now, this is actually quite an important uh, annual report. Um, it's only been around for a couple of years now, the importance of these reports. And this one, I think, does have a couple of very interesting points inside it. I'll start with the first one that I uh, read through. It is a 140 page document, so I'm going to try and briefly summarize it. But a particular item focused on kind of popular opinion about NATO. Now, what's very interesting is although they claim, and quite rightly, on average, you know, well over 60% of the NATO um, member states' populations support NATO. However, there are two key countries, well, okay, one key country, but two countries in total that don't hold an overall favour of NATO. And this means that they, uh, this means primarily that they don't believe NATO makes them a safer or better country. Now, one of these is Montenegro, and that's maybe understandable. It's quite a new country. The other one, however, could anyone maybe guess what the other country that's facing this disfavorability of NATO is? Turkey? No, surprisingly not. Poland? No, it is actually the United States. The United uh. States right now, uh, only it is 49%, let's be honest. Uh, but 49% of them uh, agree that it makes them a better country um, and improves them. However, the remaining amount either say it doesn't or are unsure. But nevertheless, it's actually quite striking. You know, the next country, which I believe is, I think, Turkey, um, might be Albania as well, they rise up like 50 and 60%. Um, still, this is actually quite important because although it's kind of understood that the current administration in the US is not entirely favourable of NATO, to see the population more questionable on it, I think raises larger questions of legitimacy that I'm not sure if NATO can answer quite soon. 
Another thing I want to highlight that kind of builds off this is also the lack of 70th anniversary responses, really. I mean, this is also the case with the anniversaries of major battles in World War II, uh, that are now their 75th anniversary. But, I mean, for their 60th anniversary, there was a big amount of effort taken on it, huge endeavours by think tanks and organisations alike. For the 70th anniversary, merely two pages in the whole of SecGen's report dedicated to it, and most of those merely pictures of Jens Stoltenberg speaking at a few occasions. Compare this to the 6th anniversary, where there were huge documents created, huge debates over the future of NATO, and I think we're starting to see NATO, if not shrink from the limelight, then purposefully kind of put itself out of the limelight in order to maybe hide from administrations and maybe even populations who are feeling less favourable of it right now. What does this have for the future? I'm not entirely sure. I think a lot of it does depend on whether Trump stays elected for another four years um, and whether some other countries such as uh, or Poland or France or even Germany kind of get to backing it a bit more um, than it's used to. But overall, I think it's important to see where NATO is going and how even they are a little concerned over sort of the future operability of them. Anyone want to comment on this? I, yes, I think it's all in line with Trump's sort of rebalancing of the multilateral order, the demand as well, which he's asked in other organizations such as the UN for a rebalancing of budget. And it's very notable as well uh, here with NATO. Uh, Ten years ago, I'm sure there would have been in, on the 60th anniversary a lot more celebrations under a Obama administration who valued it more. But also we have to remember, I think relationships between the US and Russia have changed in, in since then. And this of uh, NATO, of course, its primary function is a safeguard against an old world order, namely the remnants of the Soviet Union, today's, you know, Russian Federation. And for now, we will see what the next four years brings. I'm very certain Trump will win 2020. Uh, you can quote me on that. But... Okay, I'll, I'll <laughs> Make make down a bet. Put me down for ten pounds. They'll probably be worth uh, around three three euros by then. But but I think I think one of the re one of the reasons is is as well as is also we we're seeing a lot of of shame being being brought upon the NATO group, especially in regards to Turkey and its uh, occupation of northern Syria, which is very problematic for a lot of these allies. Uh, in in many ways to be part of this fold to be part of the fold and then have allies who have sort of been making transitions into quite of, of authoritarian totalitarian and undemocratic regimes like an Erdogan in Turkey. So that is my response okay. to that. Yeah, very interesting. Um, either of the Peter Zoran, do you want to add anything? Um, sure. Uh, what I think is, and I will be very brief here, is that. The NATO's example is impeccable as how, you know, the U.S. has actually forced a lot to, its, to the other member countries to actually be responsible, at least in the contributions and, you know, its actions, which is great. But this is taking the same example, and it is analogically very interesting, is that 
while we are also seeing another alliance which we would we know very obviously the european union is also seeing certain issues in that way if as far as structural equity is concerned how much the nations have their say and how much they should be contributory because in the post brexit scenario they have not been able to solve some of their issues but uh, even if the situation which are coming in the, this multipolar order where a nationalist united states is going to balance things up and i definitely agree with jonas this that trump is going to come back anyways unless there is a better centrist coalition because the us follows the first past the post system then i think uh, the the simple thing which would be here to consider in an analogical basis is that the western alliances like the european union as an organization the nato as a as a limited organization but different in many terms they would see the same thing that structurally they would have more diverse participations of the nations if they don't have that and we just rely on the western centric thing that okay our one particular nation can do it i think that would not work it also makes me remember the ambitious agenda that uh giverostat usually uh, envisions whenever he speaks in the european parliament that if european european union nations could have a defense agency a, a defense network which could be uh, as helpful to nato as you know to the member states and it could be a case but you know mm-hmm. this balance rebalancing would be affected and this rebalancing could only work out if nation states are diverse enough to react so it's healthy obviously it's disruptive but it's healthy at the end of the day okay thank you and uh, i mean last but not least peter do you know anything maybe better the sort of i think canada uh, is very i think i mentioned this earlier um it's actually one of the most important member states in terms of um, a lot of the activities that nato does um do you think that canada still retains like a lot of legitimacy sorry nato still retains a lot of legitimacy among the canadian populace i would say that yes very much so nato has legitimacy within the canadian populace I think Canada is very proud to be part of NATO. I very often see on Canadian news images every night of the Canadian troops training in Latvia mm-hmm. uh across Eastern Europe. I think that part of the Canadian identity right now is not being American in the sense that as America recedes into itself Canada and Trudeau specifically wants to flourish on the world stage. Mm-hmm. So Trudeau has very often announced his appreciation of NATO that Canada supports NATO, they give more to NATO. Mm-hmm. So I would say within the Canadian public, yes, there is strong support. Um another yeah. question I would have going on something that Abi said is to how much does increased European military cooperation make NATO redundant mm-hmm. if if European countries continue to cooperate if they continue to you know decide to work amongst one another amongst one another much more than they have been we've also seen this rise of European armies deciding to buy military armaments from other European countries much more so than buying them from American armaments which has been traditionally the case so perhaps it's a question for the group but what like do we think that nato is redundant in i don't know 10 15 years or are there these resurgent threats on the eastern borders on the southern borders that can kind of reinvigorate nato and perhaps make it a much more robust 
mandated organization. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And I think um, I'll draw from the report as well, actually. Like, since 2018, you know, NATO has almost tripled the amount of troops on the ground, like, mostly in, on its eastern flank. And there has been quite a sincere and serious re-evaluation of the importance of NATO that, yes, it is important. I think a lot of the pro-European defence um, sort of, yeah, replacement of NATO ideals aren't going to be as important to the new von der Leyen Commission. Um, and I say this as well because the EU used to have a commissioner for European security and defence. In fact, the British commissioner previously was the first of these. T- today, right now, that's been merged into a very weak administration. And I don't believe there is any sincere belief either in the EU or even in member countries of the EU that NATO can or should be replaced anytime soon. If potentially enlargement succeeded well in the Western Balkans and Turkey subsided as being a more aggressive member and maybe Russia as well um, perhaps uh, sort of became an easier partner, then potentially NATO could um, sort of coalesce with the EU. But for now, there are serious threats. And I don't believe that anyone in NATO um, or in the member states of NATO really believes that working independently of NATO would be best. Um, In terms of provisions, yes. In terms of armaments, there is definitely a big shift towards not just US military um, machinery. I mean, the European Defence Agency, they've been working on public procurement for years now. And if anything, the EU sees its market um, as the best way to support NATO fundamentally. Um, And that is one area where I think, you know, it has unprecedented um, sort of access and strength is in its markets. And it's trying to establish a defence market that will work for all. The US also hasn't been as... Um, aggressive against this, as one would expect. Um, Yes, of course, it's angry at Turkey for buying Russian machinery, but in terms of Europeans buying European machinery, if anything, I would say the US is actually rather hopeful of this and shows that it's going to become a more sustainable defence area rather than relying on the US for everything. I mean, let's remember, even a few years ago, Belgium had to import helmets for their police officers because they didn't have enough. Uh, now they buy them from Germany, or they're made in Poland, which I think uh, is a hopeful improvement. Still, we, we will see. If I may jump in from that, Philippe. Um, uh, so, ahead, Jeff. Uh, building from the EU's sort of uh, greater military cooperation, if we've learned anything over the past few weeks, it's that we know that Europe, the European Union has struggled with putting a collective uh, response out there fast and efficient. And I think that's the same for an EU army. I still feel that this idea of this goal of uh, a joint EU army, if you want to call it, uh, as as was sort of stipulated or alluded to in, of course, the Lisbon Treaty, is still far away. And uh, it all depends, of course, on a united politics, a sort of a united sentiment within 
the member states to actually actualize something along a similar line as NATO. And I think, generally speaking, NATO has been um, pushing up its budget, not just in, in, in presence of soldiers, but also in technological uh, spending and innovations. I know also in cyber warfare over the past few years, they have been putting a lot in, just to give you rough ideas, whilst allies were, European allies in Canada were between 2016 and 2020, having a cumul cumulative um, budget of 130 billion US dollars by uh, by 2000 by the end of 2024 this budget will be around 400 billion US dollars and I, I think it remains uh, the cornerstone in sense of, of well hard power security in Europe uh, NATO especially uh, in these times where there, there seems to be no um, united, Action in sense of the in sense of the EU uh, nations in actually furthering multilateral uh, principles uh, on in Europe uh, and okay. so. Uh, Thank you. Well, I think on that uh, we'll draw the conversation to a close here. I mean, thank you all of you. Thank you, Bavada, Jonas, and Peter. Uh, so that's been today's Great European Talks. Uh, next time, we'll talk a bit more about Central and Southern Europe, go back to kind of uh, the very dynamic area there. Um, please do check us out. Check out our other podcast. Check out our website, www.institutegreatereurope.com. We are currently publishing a raft of new articles with our fantastic new writers, such as Jonas and Peter. Um, so thank you to them. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.